Hello, and welcome to the Third Age Design Podcast, sharing essential information on senior environments. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley. The physiological changes that occur with aging can impair appetite. These include changes to the digestive system, hormonal changes, disease, pain, changes in the sense of smell, taste, and vision, and a decreased need for energy. Now, changes to the digestive system can contribute to a declining appetite. And this month, our TAD podcast continues our series entitled Designing for the Other Four Senses. We're always designing, of course, for operational requirements and how things look. But this month, we're reviewing the sense of taste and what design professionals can add to an environment to facilitate appetite. I'll shortly be speaking with design professional and university lecturer Diana Chilella about this important topic. And a couple of months back, our Innovation Spotlight told you about Salutum CEO John Godden, who switched places with a carer for a day. We said we'd try to get him on the podcast to discuss his lessons learned, and you're going to hear from him later in the podcast, including a rather unexpected outcome specifically related to assistance with dining. American writer William Arthur Ward has said, Blessed is he who learns to admire but not envy, to follow but not imitate, to praise but not flatter, and to lead but not manipulate. Yep. There's a lot to unpick there, but here at Third Age Design, we believe in admiring the work of others, following best practice without direct imitation, and to lead by sharing what we've learned. And this is an open invitation for you to take part. Go to our website at thirdage.design and hit the Join Us button. You'll automatically receive this quarter's A Tad Extra, which is exclusive information for our community members. You can also share blogs on our website or list sector events. Together, we're working to research and share information on interior environments for the third age internationally in order to improve standards everywhere. Plus, it's entirely free. We have listeners in 22 countries, and the podcast is translated through our website into 12 languages in addition to English. Come on, what are you waiting for? The Third Age Design Podcast is supported by InnovaCare Concepts, whose mission is to enhance quality of life through innovation. From hydrotherapy pools to furniture, you'll find quality, aesthetics, and functionality in all unique Innova products. InnovaCare Concepts, the leading edge of healthcare. Okay, let's get started. Daily Caring was awarded Best Senior Caregiving Website in 2022, and under the heading Common Senior Conditions, they list 10 reasons why seniors lose their appetite. These include lack of exercise, hydration, lack of routine, depression, and many more. You'll find a link on our website at thirdage.com to the full article, but today we're fortunate to be joined by design expert Diana Chilella, an international award-winning designer, director of the Drawing Room Interiors, associate consultant Hammond Care, Dementia Choice, past president of the SBID, and past chairman of the Healthcare Design Panel, or HDAC. 
She works in the commercial interior sector specializing in healthcare projects, from care homes and dental practices to assisted living and retirement villages, and she's recognized throughout the industry as an expert in implementing evidence-based design. Diana is also a university lecturer for the master's program in interior design at Southampton University in the United Kingdom. Diana, welcome. I can't believe you have time to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much, Laurie. That's really kind of you. Can I just correct? It's, it's Arts University Bournemouth, not Southampton. Sorry. Oh, goodness. That is a very big oversight on my, I don't know how I, how I did that. Thank you so much for inviting me today. It's really kind of you. As our topic is taste today, while we're looking at designing for the other four senses rather than just the way things look, I'm just wondering if you're familiar with the practice of putting clear glass refrigerators in dementia corridors, for example, where you might have fresh food on plates all the time. And I'm just wondering if you've ever done that in your in your own practice and what you needed to do to get that to work well for residents. I haven't put any glass refrigerators in dementia corridors. However, I have used them in other areas. So strangely, I'm actually working on a design at the moment um, for a sideboard unit for a client, which is not only going to have a glass fronted fridge, it's, only, it's also going to have a glass fronted freezer. Ooh. And that's to go in various dementia units. So the idea is to put fresh chilled food and drink, but also offer ice creams and ice lollies. So the unit will be going into lounge dining areas mostly. So we don't need to cut down any handrails or anything, but right. we're actually putting like a section in between. So if you imagine there'll be a fridge glass fronted at one end at the, at the sideboard, the other end of freezer in the middle, an open area where it can have plates and glasses and stuff. So it's very open for people to be able to see. So, um, yeah, so we're working on that at the moment. Um, as to your question, is it a successful intervention? Obviously, we've got to be careful or, or of the carers need to be careful to make sure there aren't any residents that have got a risk of choking within the unit before they put food available to just take. So that's got to be obviously risk assessed. But apart from that, um, the care homes that I've worked on and work with, a lot of them make, you know, um, fresh daily snacks available all day. And these seem to work really well, especially for people with living with dementia, because sometimes they prefer to eat little and often and yes. not at the set times for dining. So it's 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 nice to have other food and, you know, available at any time. And also there seems to be a predominance of interest in things that are sweet. So I'm quite intrigued by the concept of putting in a freezer where you can see ice lollies and these these can be you know fruit they could be quite exactly. healthy and as well yeah. couldn't they exactly and the, and the, they're a good way sometimes it's quite hard hard to hydrate people they don't always drink enough water so obviously ice lollies is another way of, of hydrating in especially in the summer so mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a nice idea I think it's a brilliant idea, and I love the addition of the of of the freezer that can support that. Do you think there are any particular colors that you think are very good for enhancing uh, appetite in senior environments, and any that you'd really like to recommend to listeners that they might want to stay away from? Well, from a color psychology point of view, we always say red is appetite-inducing color. 
But that doesn't mean that I use red in every dining room because red has other connotations as well, you know, danger, stop, all sorts yes. of different things. So I tend to use colours which are calming and encourage residents to sit and enjoy their food. So I often use nature, like a biophilic type feel in, in, in dining areas, so perhaps pale greens. I tend to avoid the darker shades of green, blue, reds and purples because they can cast colour on food and, you know, and particular shades of blue can be appetite suppressing. So I'm careful which shades of blue. It doesn't mean I don't use blue, but I'm very careful on the shades of blue I might use within a dining area. So which are the shades that you would of blue that you would stay away from in particular? The are they redder blues or greener colder, blues? Or? Yeah, the colder side of blues. So, you know, your grayer, your grayer blues, your, your blues going more towards the warmer side, you know, coming over towards the, 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 the almost going into the purpley sort of, you know, ready hues of blue, I think are much better. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, artwork is also a tricky one, uh, particularly in communal spaces, because not everyone has the same taste in art, obviously. How do you approach that in dining areas without having literal pictures of food uh, like you might get in a in a canteen someplace? Or do you actually have literal pictures of food and where would you use those and where wouldn't you use those? So I do use images or pictures related to food. as I find they're dementia enabling, so they prompt residents to allow them to realize what the room's function is and help, help with that situation. However, I do like to think I do this with taste. <laughs> For example, I've just finished a care home um, where the artwork in one of the dining rooms, I actually used vintage jelly molds to create three dimensional artwork. Or I might use lovely paintings of fruit and do them as a collage, perhaps with vintage images of people in that area picking apples or I might use um, framed artistic sort of layout of knives and forks to create a spec, you know, anything that's sort of like related to food, but not necessarily a, an obvious picture photograph of like a plate of food, which you often see and looks quite childish almost. Yes, and, yes. Um, it looks like a bit like a nursery would have. So I do tend to use food related, but I'd like to think that I do take a slightly different take on that. And I usually try and put pictures of food relation in some way in the corridor near the, the dining room as well to, again, help wayfinding and help. Right. You know, yeah. As a way of flowing into into exactly. that space in a natural yeah. Yeah. way. How do you address lighting um when people are eating so these days restaurants and hotels where their dining areas it's so dark you can you can barely see and obviously as people age they require uh brighter light levels um what sort of color temperature would you be looking at in in these areas well as you said the most important thing is to have a good lighting level in the complete room no shadows, no dark corners, diffused light so there isn't glare. Natural light is by far the best light. So mm -hmm. I'm very careful with how I dress the windows. So if there's curtains, you know, pulling them back as far off the window as possible to let in the maximum daylight. And as you said, as we age, we need more light. People over 65 will on average need double the amount of light as 20 year old, which is quite incredible, really. 
So it shows the importance of getting the lighting levels correct in a care home. As far as lighting temperature goes, I usually aim for around the 2700 Kelvin, which gives a it's on the warmer scale, but less so less clinical. Right. Um, where possible, I usually work with a lighting designer to ensure that we can reach a constant lux levels, um, correct temperature, and also achieving good lighting levels that not without too much differentiation between areas. So if you've got the corridor and then going into the dining room, you don't want a sudden change in, in the lux levels because as we age, our pupils take longer to adjust. So it's trying to even out that sort of, mm -hmm. you know, constant light is, I, I feel is the most important, which is why we often bring in like a lighting expert to, to help us achieve that. And then that also goes back to what you were saying with the artwork, your flow from one space to the other becomes okay. more natural without your, your body or, or any of your senses having to do a strong adjustment, in other yes, words. Yes, exactly, yes. One thing we've noticed is food delivery seems to be quite different between different operators. And this is both in retirement and care and dementia. Uh, there's everything from the Banmarie hot trolleys uh, to custom design services, home style cooking in household models. What do you get asked for the most, Diana? And then the second part of this question is what do you think the future of food delivery will be like um, and that designers and architects and operators should really start focusing in on? Well, the most common delivery um, that most of my clients use is the one you mentioned, a Bemery trolley. And I tend to design a housing within the kitchen or a kitchen island that it then fits in and becomes part of the kitchen. So they plug it in, they, yeah. they take it from the main kitchen, put it into the space and plug it in again to keep it warm. Exactly, okay. yeah, that's what most people do. And I found that dining rooms, thank goodness, are becoming smaller, um, so they're less institutional. But sometimes when we're doing refurbishments, we still have the large dining rooms, which we tend to break up then with sort of room divide and stuff to make them feel more domestic, less institutional, less canteen-like. Right. And which also helps with the acoustics, uh, which can be a major contributor to frustration in dining. The model I feel care wants to move towards, budget allowing, um, <laughs> is for cooking to take place within the kitchen areas themselves, creating their own real kitchen smells, allowing residents to be involved in food preparation should they wish, even if it's partly prepared somewhere else, with gardens growing fruit, herbs, vegetables in high-level planters, so residents can be involved with the growing and the picking to use within the kitchens. I think this is the ideal and the future, but often budget gets in the way of this. So, you know, that's a sad part of that. But I think that's the way of the future. Right. Budget so, gets involved in a lot of things, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it does. <laughs> we do the best we can. Uh, you can <laughs> acoustics, and they are quite bright acoustically because generally you will have some sort of hard flooring surface. You will yeah. have tables, you have cutlery, you'll have general noise. What other acoustic interventions have you have you found useful in these spaces? Well, absolutely. Dining rooms tend to have, as you said, lots of hard surfaces and sound reverberates. 
got the noise of cluttering in plates. And as a designer, I am so aware of acoustics in designing places. I'm hard of hearing myself. I wear hearing aids. So I know how awful and isolating it is to sit in a dining area where I can hear the clang of dishes, but not the person sitting next to me and speaking to me. It's embarrassing to ask someone to keep repeating what they've said. So you do tend to withdraw from the conversation and take yourself out of that, which is quite isolating. Yes, because so it, it should be a social occasion to a certain exactly, extent. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm really aware of this in dining areas. So I often use acoustic, what I call acoustic artwork, which is artwork digitally printed onto sound absorbing substrate. And they look like normal artwork, but they're actually absorbing sound. So I often use that. I've also used in the past like acoustic tiles, which can make art statements, you know, 3D patterns. And they're usually in sustainable finishes. So there's lots of them now made into out of recycled plastic bottles, that sort of thing. I've also once used um, acoustic light fittings over tables. So the lights themselves were sound um, sound absorbing as well, which was quite good. That's a totally new one on me. Yeah, the only disadvantage in that, there's advantage and disadvantage, you need them quite low and they're made out of, the, they tend to be made out of the same fabric as, as, as the acoustic tiles, you know, like this almost thick, thick felt. Yes. But you need to have them low over the table, which is great if you're always going to keep the dining room in that um, layout. But however, if you want to move the layout round for, I don't know, perhaps a room doubles up for other activities, then it doesn't work so well or you need hooks on the ceiling to hook them up. So that's when it doesn't work quite so well. But then as well as this, I'd use heavy fabrics on the curtains, breathable upholstery fabrics, perhaps acoustic flooring. So everything to try and help absorb as much of this sound that we can in a dining room. And then that will make the experience better for the diner yes. um, uh, uh, when, whenever they're in that space. You also mentioned in terms of the future having smells uh, by people making food in their own kitchen area do you do anything right now uh with adding smells into dining areas and if so what sort of smells do you do you add right well we have used um commercial scent machines before so in the dining areas we've done things like you know the smell of bread coffee uh, in dementia areas where food is not being cooked on the premises as, as we've talked about and there isn't smell it's really important to, you know, try and gain people's appetite. Some people living with dementia can, you know, lose some of their appetite. So it's anything that can help them, you know. So we've used, um, we have used uh, commercial scent machines in those situations. We've also used scent machines in other areas. So say sensory rooms where we've used smells of sea or cooked grass, all sorts of different things. Right, yeah. right. And the the table setting itself, do you ever get involved in that? Because when we go to trade shows, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in, there are always uh, specialist knives and forks, but also plates that might have colored rings on them. Is that something that you ever get involved with or is that generally handled by elsewhere within the, uh, the, the care home or facility? Absolutely. I do get involved because I need to ensure there's a contrast between the table or if they're using the tablecloth, the tablecloth with the placemat, then a contrast between the placemat and the plate. Um, 
the plate color is very important because we need to get a good LRV, like reflectancy value difference between the food and the plate so the resident can actually see the food well. Blue is often used in care home plates. The theory being that there's not many foods or any foods perhaps that are blue in color, so it'll show up. But the problem with that is that it's not the color we should be looking at, it's the LRV. So if you put a, a certain shade of green lettuce leaf, say on a blue plate, it might not necessarily be that visible. So I do have clients that use two different colors of plates depending on the food being served. So for example, if they were serving something like say chicken and mash potato. Yeah, I was just blue, thinking mash yeah. and meat is a is a good client. A blue, blue plate, if they were doing say salad with salmon, they might use a white plate. So the change, because the importance isn't the color, it is the light reflectancy value. And it's making sure somebody with a sight, some sort of sight impediment or perhaps dementia can see the food to actually be able to eat it. So the contrast is really important, yeah. So I'll probably get involved more in that than the, the obviously the plates are often have high sides to, to make it easier so the food doesn't sort of run away, if you like, yeah. <laughs> trying to cut it. I probably get more involved in the colour and the contrast than I do in, in the sides and special uh, uh, cutlery because the cutlery is is really different for different needs. And yes, different it's a manual dexterity yeah. issue yeah. as much yeah. as anything else, yeah. which might be more of an occupational therapist's exactly. approach. But then yeah. your placemats that you were talking about, you'd need two sets of placemats to go with your two sets exactly. of, of plates. Yeah. Yeah, so that's all part of the supply of FF and E, presumably at that at yeah. that point. Exactly. Um, do you ever do height adjustable tables? There are so many different heights of wheelchair, for example, that if people have different needs, there's a bit of a tension I find between offering different heights of table and staff actually having the time to be adjusting table heights, taking everything off, making sure it's locked and safe. How do you sit on that and, and how much of that do you get involved with? So in many, many projects, we do use height adjustable tables to accommodate different wheelchair heights. It's really important that people in a wheelchair can sit up to the table because with a table that's not height adjustable, they often end up sitting so far away from the table because the wheelchair won't go underneath that they can't actually reach the table. And then the, the result of that is somebody has to feed them and then they're losing independence, which is really sad. And I think it's our duty to enable people as much as we can for independence. However, I totally agree with what you've said. The number of times I've put height adjustable tables into projects and then I go back and they've been left at the same height from the beginning. You left them out. <laughs> yeah. And so I've, and I have got clients that said, look, we're not going to pay the extra for height adjustable because it just doesn't happen. So it is a problem. Um, and I think that's down to sort of staff training and we try and go in, we finish a project and give as much staff training as we can. Um, but you know, it is, it is extra time taken. Um, but if usually, you know, you, you get, if you can get the same person in the same type of wheelchair to sit at the same table each day, perhaps you can adjust them for that yes. particular wheelchair because it is so important and it, it must be so frustrating for somebody to have the ability to feed themselves, but they can't reach the food. I mean, I can't imagine that frustration. No, and part of the issue must also be 
the staffing itself because so it's so difficult to get staff not only here in the UK where we're recording today but really all over the world yeah. that there's a lot of agency staff used so even mm-hmm. if you were training people on yes. um, the day yeah. that you hand the building over they're unlikely to be the people that are actually assisting in the dining two months from now yeah and they might not even realize that the table has an ability to go up and down um you know so yeah i agree i think it is a problem um but we do use them we do use them and when they're used properly they're really successful they're really successful speaking of successful what would you say diana is been your has been your most successful senior living dining facility that you've ever designed and and why gosh that's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, because you can't, you don't want to pick your clients on <laughs> on a podcast and say yours was best, but perhaps, <laughs> perhaps more conceptually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I suppose I always think the latest project I've done is always better, perhaps in some ways, because our knowledge increases with every project we do. So there's more evidence-based research done by the universities, which is available for us to, to learn from. Also, the actual pers- universities that you're working at, not the ones that I'm making up. Is that correct? <laughs> 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 Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you do the same. I go back to projects after they're finished. What, about six months later, and see how things are working so I can learn from what I've done right and wrong, what's worked well and what's not. So therefore, I almost feel as though each project is an improvement on the last. And I say that loosely because it's brief allowing. So, you know, sometimes your brief won't allow that. But I, you know, generally I'd say the last project is is, is done with more knowledge than the last one. And we gain this knowledge as we go along. So the last large project I did new build I had a wonderful client who was very knowledgeable in their own right on dementia friendly design and keen to try new ideas which is great and it made it a very interesting project to work on we had small dining rooms that felt more domestic and they were doubling up as activity rooms so I designed kitchens to disappear so that they disappeared when it wasn't Mm. used as kitchens so we had kitchens with doors that closed on the kitchen and it made it look like almost like a dresser piece of furniture when the room changed function. So that was so far quite successful in that it meant that you were going into an activity room then rather than going into a dining room. Um, because when we've got very open kitchens, it always looks like a kitchen. And we like also, you're doing something else in the kitchen. So this yeah, is really exactly. a transformative room. Yeah. It, the way you designed it. Yeah. And also for people with dementia, it's less distracting then that there's all this kitchen equipment. This kitchen equipment's now disappeared. So so I, I found that, that that was quite an unusual thing to do. Um, on that same project, we used very unusual artwork throughout. It, it was a care home that was being built in grounds of their old care home where the residents were living, then moving into the new care home and the old care home would be demolished afterwards. So I took lots of memorabilia from the old care home um, and reused it. So it didn't feel like something absolutely brand new. No, nothing f- totally foreign. Yeah, yeah, I tried to. And then we used an international muralist to hand paint, Ryan Lachlan, 
who hand painted the most fantastic murals on the walls. And that helped with wayfinding two things like the dining areas, you know. We had just past one of the dining rooms, we had this magnificent tree outside. So I made a sort of bird watching area, binoculars and bird books. And he painted the corridor with all different trees, but going through the seasons. So it led down. So, and we did sort of wayfinding murals outside, dining areas. So yeah, it was it was really nice to work on and, and, and fun. Yeah. Oh, that's very inspiring. That's, <laughs> that's a wonderful thing uh, to end on. <laughs> I thank you so much for taking part of this uh, in the podcast and, and sharing your your wisdom and experience. And to our listeners, you'll find direct links to Drawing Room Interiors and additional research on today's topic on the podcast page for this episode at thirdage.design. Thank you so much for inviting me, Laurie. As I mentioned at the top of today's podcast, we've been tracking a story for a couple of months now related to the idea of a job swap. What might be learned from this? In today's Innovation Spotlight, I'm speaking with John Godden, CEO of Salutum Care and Education with over 130 services offered nationwide across the United Kingdom. Hello, John. Hi, Laurie. Pleasure to be here. We had read about your interaction one-to-one -one with people in a salutum facility so i just a little background among other activities you develop care facilities and you host other sort of innovations within the sector in other words you're very very busy so the first question is what made you think of switching jobs for a day with a care assistant well, look, I mean, you know, we're an organization of, uh, I don't know, 3,000 people or so, um, each of whom are equally important. Um, and, you know, we provide care and uh, education for people with complex needs across the country. And that's delivered, as you say, across 130 locations. Um, a big part of my job is making decisions that have an impact on what happens at the front. And, um, you know, make hopefully things better, but you know, if I get it wrong, can make things um, worse for those delivering the care, particularly to um, uh, to all of our all of the individuals in our in our services. So you can't, I can't do that job really in a vacuum. Um, you know, I need more information now. Classically, a lot of that information sort of percolates for an organisation through information systems, whether that's, you know, data or feedback or reports and all of those sorts of things. But mm -hmm. there's really no substitute for just going in and feeling it for yourself and experiencing it. So that's where the idea was born. Um, but it came to fruition via another um, thing that we do, which is to give our staff a voice. We have the Salutum Employee Listening Forum, self Somebody was up all night thinking up that one, um, <laughs> and 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 one of the um, one of the elected reps there, um, a very experienced carer, actually sort of really liked this idea, and and he enabled it. So um, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of skill involved in in what he does every day to look after the the people in his care, which is uh, which are guys suffering from uh, cere cerebral palsy. Uh, so he uh, works in a service for. 
um, uh, three young guys with cerebral palsy. They're in their 20s. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't just turn up and do his job. Um, so th- what I did is I did his job with him. And, right, right. Uh, and, and he, in turn, will come and do my job with me. Uh, we haven't uh, fixed a date for that. Um, we, we will do that soon. But, yeah, the idea was to give me, to, to put me as much as possible in his shoes for a day. So I could really experience what it's like to do his job. Was there anything that you found specifically surprising about his role? Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I, actually, I would categorize it as surprising, although, you know, it, none, of, none of it is, is sort of unknown and magic. But it was the degree of skill of basic tasks that's that he deploys and you know we've always railed against people being dismissive of of a care as a a profession that's you know easy and unskilled and manual all those things and it isn't um and just the 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 tasks that he was having to perform every day in order to enable the three guys in that service to get through their day in a positive way were conducted with such a level of dexterity and skill that meant that he delivered those and was then able to layer up on top of the delivery of care um, relationship building with these guys and you know really giving them the sort of experience that you would want any 25 year old guy to have in life mm-hmm. but yeah the, the really remarkable thing was just that the level of skill of all of the basics was way beyond what was in my mind and understanding. And I haven't had the privilege of being um, a frontline carer. Uh, My route into this job was somewhat different. So it was more important that I experienced and felt that. And the, the way the equipment was deployed, the way that it was just done with ease and comfort, something that takes a long time to learn and get right that really the manual handling and that sort of thing but the manual handling but the processes the order of the processes and you know the and the detail of it but you know it's when, when you've got people who've got severe physical disabilities everything's a hassle right you know that's your, that's your starting point you know so all your simple tasks you know the obvious ones you know going to the bathroom but you know getting dressed and and getting up and and, and choosing your clothes and um doing the th- feeding all of those sorts of things you, there's a lot more to that process there's a lot more thought to that process you know we all do it we're lucky you know it's, and it's all very natural to us mm-hmm. but we haven't got those dis- disabilities and difficulties and challenges but just the the way that everything was done and was moved through with such grace and elegance actually of, of some very complex things and of course you know no, no two days and no two actions are the same so the flexibility of thought to just react to something with ease and just be able to do it was was really lovely to see. Actually. Yeah, you sound very, very impressed with what you took mm. on there. I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of the interior environment in which the residents are in and the, the staff is working, did you make any mental notes on the day or in retrospect about the environment in particular? Sure. And 
you know, an environment like this where you have a lot of moving and handling equipment, a lot of, spe- you know, beds and standing frames and all the different sort of mechanical devices moving around. And then you layer that up with, you know, medication equipment, all of that sort of stuff. It's very, very easy to just deliver that in a very sort of institutionalized clinical way. But this is a home for three guys, right? And your first impression is always, well, if these three mid-20s guys were living in a bungalow together, what is it they want? You know, how do they want to live? It's their home. And you've got to bridge that. You've got to get all of the equipment that they need in a way that is an enjoyable environment, both to live in for them, but also seamlessly integrated with what the staff need. So, yeah, there a few a, a few things actually that really sort of um, stood out was we hadn't um, necessarily got that balance right, particularly in terms of the staff needs. Mm-hmm. And I think the the, the the home is homely. Bedrooms definitely shared a common the the the, the um, common areas maybe. Bathrooms not. The bathrooms were way too institutionalized i mean you you wouldn't have a bathroom decorated that way in your home in your home yeah so that's something we need to work on um but and a lot of thought and effort have been put into the bedroom environments um and and a little bit more to do in the common areas um but but the bathrooms particularly were i felt uh, we could do that better and what about the staff, any um, separated staff uh, accommodation or um, yeah, um, spaces? Actually, it was, yeah, it wasn't, there wasn't much separate. I mean, you know, it's a, a smallish environment, which is good, you know, and, you know, that that is something to be uh, applauded. You know, it's, it, it's not, it's anti-institution in that respect. And, and the staff obviously have got, jobs that they need to be doing during their day i mean mostly around you know the recording of things uh, which you need to do for regulatory purposes and progression purposes um so we didn't necessarily the separation space was um was there but actually and and we do need to do a bit more on that Um, that wasn't good enough but it was actually dealing with the staff requirements when they were around the service users that was oh. um, something I felt was not right. So you've got three guys who, you know, in their various moments are either in their bed for sleeping or they're in various chairs for moving around for personal care for bathing. And then they've got standing frames. So all of their sitting and standing needs are taken care of by fairly specific equipment. And, and that's fine. That's great. But then you get to, well, the staff need to be, you know accommodated at that level also whether they're interacting with the individuals or whether they're quickly off doing their electronic note taking or whatever it might be and and there was just a rubbish sofa and and some slightly poxy little chairs that they could sit in front of somebody in their in in their um, motorized chair to to help them with um uh food so right. I so felt the front it was of house, yeah, it was afterthought. It wasn't, it wasn't as you know the, the thought that had gone into all of the facilities around the guys was great and and obvious, but the thought that had been put in 
to the needs of the staff around them, that equipment that they needed to sit, to stand, whatever, that wasn't good enough. There's there's work to do on that that side of things and more comfort, more utility, more accessibility around that. It was, yeah, cheap so and cheerful. So staff front of house rather yeah. than staff back of house. Yeah. Was yeah, the back of, more the back of, of house. Yeah. yeah, the back of house, I think, is an issue we all recognise. We all go, look, you know, staff need their space to be able to step away and, and do that. And you need that. You, you know, you don't, you, you want a, um, uh, a staff um, breakout room that is appropriate and relaxing and all. You, you want that. I think we all kind of have that in our brain anyway. You know, so that wouldn't have been a surprise. And and you 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 always want to try and sort of make that work. But the one thing that I learned really was that front of house interactive staff equipment. And you know you go into care facilities where everybody needs a chair because they are ambulant, and the staff use the same chair as uh, as as um, a resident uh, individual you support, and, and that's fine. But you know we have an awful lot of services where um, the needs for sitting of the staff versus the service users are very, are very different and the staff gets forgotten. And it does actually impact negatively on their ability to deliver care. That is fascinating. And I've never heard anybody uh, share that idea before. So that you've certainly given me something something to think about we, and I'm sure our listeners as well. But you know, we there's, there's it's now accepted wisdom that in an office environment, you now need to put a good amount of thought and energy into the sitting position, the computer position, you know, the posture, all of that. You know, so money is spent on you know proper chairs and desks and getting the keyboards and what. You know, that's that's accepted wisdom in in that workplace, isn't it? Yes. And yet, in the workplace that a lot of our staff are in, we haven't put that same level of care and attention into them. So. I found myself, um, you know, giving lunch to one of the guys, so helping him with his uh, with his eating, and I mean, obviously, that's you know, I'm I'm right in with him, and the the stool to sit on was deeply unhelpful. I mean, it, it, there was no we given no thought and energy to that at all, and. You know, I'm I'm reasonably fortunate that you know my posture is okay and, and I don't suffer from uh, pains and things like that. But you know, a lot of staff do, and you think, well, we're not helping them here. This is this is not good. So more work needs to be done on that for sure. Mm. So task task related uh, items for yes. for this for the staff. I mean, yeah. this is part of our. Uh, innovation spotlight. And so I just would like to ask, do you have other sort of novel initiatives for Salutum and yourself in the pipeline? We do, we do. Um, we're, we're currently working, we have a joint venture with Kingston University um, to use um, wearables to um, uh, help bridge the understanding between what an individual we support needs and what the staff see as that need at a given moment. And, you know, we, we all, you know, I mean, I use a smartwatch, everybody, you know, we, we've got mobile phones that um, provide us with an awful lot of data about what's going on on our bodies. You know, we have a high number of individuals we support who are by degree uh, nonverbal. 
So we're working on a piece of equipment where, or on an algorithm where we can use the measurements that you can now easily get around um, the, the physiology of a human mm-hmm. to um, aid better care. So again, back to the three guys that I experienced with my day of um, job sharing with Steve. Um, you know, they what well, actually one of them was semi-verbal, two completely non-verbal. But of course, they communicate by other means, and you know, really good carers tune into that to a degree. Um, but you know, we're not fortunate enough to have carers who've you know necessarily got ten years of experience. Some of them um, uh, are a little less um, experienced than that. So we wanted to bring something that gave them the sort of messaging and reading. Um, of a more that a more experienced carer might be able to pick up so we're using the wearable technology to provide signals that then get correlated with um, uh, things that we then know around maybe discomfort so if one of these non-verbal guys is uncomfortable in their chair they need to be moved well how do they communicate that how do we know Mm -hmm. and actually it correlates highly with heart rate um, body temperature actually one of the biggest correlations is um, body hydration body hydration is an incredible indicator for comfort or discomfort so we're working on a project with Kingston to measure that so that on a live basis the carers have more information about how the individual is at that moment in time but then on a longer term basis gives us feedback about um, what changes what impact changes have had i mean you know the the technology around um the the chairs that people with physical disabilities have moved on in leaps and bounds and you know we all see that they are more comfortable more able to move all of those things but what we're doing with kingston is going to give us much better feedback loops on that and we are going to be able to see straight away what impact a change in a chair, a profiling bed, um, you know, whatever it might be, even, even the equipment in a um, uh, in a personal care suite. Um, and we'll be able to see change in patterns of comfort and physiology um, by changing environment and other factors in their care. So this is something we're very excited about. That is fascinating. And we did a, uh, a study several years ago with the client where we created sample rooms for a group of people that were going to move from one facility to another. And these were nonverbal people with dementia and we didn't have that technology. So what we did was we walked, the people were taken into these spaces with their family members and carers. And then people were trying to interpret which environment in which they felt most comfortable and most at home so that we could give that scheme to them when they moved into that home. So it seems as if in terms of interior environments that could even be stretched into that sort of piece of work as well. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, we all know that, you know, people with dementia and, and autism and all these things, they have great sensitivities to uh, temperature, to, to light, Uh, not only intensity, but, you know, different types of light. We know all these things and this, you know, there's a lot of observations that are taking place to, to tell us these things and development is done. You know, we are trying to put another tool into that toolbox to be able to see faster, hopefully, the, the impact that it has on that individual. So you can really personalize an environment 
um, to best meet that person's uh, requirements at that moment. And you cheapen the process, um, you know, because you're able to get your observations in faster. Um, and you, particularly, I mean, I know you do an awful lot of work around people with dementia. You know, dementia is incredibly progressive, moves very quickly. Then their needs and comforts change rapidly. Um, you know, you haven't got the luxury of weeks and months to try and figure this stuff out right. to um, to do it. So something that can measure it and react to it over days and then you can change environmental factors to to better suit what they need. Um, you know, this is this is progressive stuff. I, you know, this is where we want to go. Very progressive. And if we can be of any assistance with that in the future, we'd be delighted to because it is it is very much um, as a as an industry and as a sector, we talk about um, individualized, personalized care. But yeah. what what is that ever actually meant other than a care plan? So getting yeah. into this further level of development data individualized service is obviously the way forward thank you so much for your time today and i would like to come back to you sometime in the future to talk about yeah, we have more to talk about absolutely thank you john lovely thanks very much laurie it's been a pleasure just time then for a quick look at our tad international events calendar the Senior Living Executive Conference is taking place in New Orleans, Louisiana, USA from the 8th to the 10th of May. The Integrated Conference of Integrated Care is in Antwerp, Belgium from the 22nd to the 24th of May, and we envision this to be very integrated. <laughs> and the 33rd Alzheimer Europe Conference will take place in Helsinki, Finland from October the 16th to the 18th. As always, you'll find further details and listings on the event page at www.thirdage.design and let us know if you have an event you'd like to see listed via our contact page. Thank you to today's special guest, Diana Chilella from The Drawing Room Interiors, to our Innovation Spotlight guest, John Godden of Salutum Care and Education, to our producer, Mike Scales, to Valerie Adler of The Right Website, to Peter Thorne, who composed our theme music and is playing the piano with Mary Blanchard on flute. And to our sponsors, Care Concepts, the leading edge of healthcare. Finally, to you. Thank you for being part of a community who believes we can improve senior environments together. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley. Next month, we'll complete our series, Designing for the Other Four Senses, with Designing for Touch, and we'll have several experts on hand to help us explore this important touchy-feely topic. I do hope you'll join me. Mm -hmm.